I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa. John Ford has the morning off. Today, the ruckus of Roku. Why shares are plunging double digits this morning and where they might go from here. Then doing the Chamath as Chamath Palahapatia steps down as Virgin Galactic's chairman. What does that mean for the company? What about his other SPACs? We're going to discuss that. Finally, you don't want to miss Dropbox CEO Drew Houston this hour talking about earnings, the cloud, remote work, and a whole lot more uh, on top of all the geopolitical tensions. Busy hour, D. Busy indeed. Uh, stocks, meanwhile, they're lower after big risk-off move into the close yesterday. The Dow seeing its worst day since November 2021, and the Nasdaq is now on pace for its second consecutive week of losses. With so many names under pressure, is now the time to put your money to work. Dom Chu has screened all of the S&P tech sector, joins us with some of the cheaper names. Dom, you're looking at one valuation in particular, and that's price to earnings. That's right, on a forward basis, because a lot of traders and investors like to look at that forward price to earnings ratio as a way to gauge what the prospects are today, the price you pay for next year's anticipated earnings. Now, if you take a look at the S&P 500 tech sector versus the broader market overall, you can see underperformance in tech, and that's led some people to say, hey, it's the S&P 500's biggest and most important, arguably, sector in the entire market. Can I find certain values there? We're going to look at those low P.E. stocks because on a 10-year basis, over the first part of the last decade, you did see the S&P 500 generally outperform in terms of the overall kind of market. The sector-wise valuation now stands at about 25 times forward earnings for the S&P 500 technology sector. It's closer to around 20 times for the broader S&P 500 overall, indicating that there is In fact, a premium put on valuations there within that overall sector. If you take a look at some of the stocks that are kind of in play right now, we we decided to do a screen. And in that screen, what we wanted to look for was all of the technology stocks in the S&P 500. That's roughly 75 of them. We took a look at those ones that have generally had a positive year, 12-month price performance that's been to the upside. Meanwhile, what you've had are sell-offs in just the last few months here. So a year-to-date negative performance for that particular at least those particular stocks. Among those, we found 22 that have price-to-earnings ratios on a forward basis of 25 or less. The reason why 25 is important is because that's the overall forward P.E. of the sector. With that in mind, we took a look at these ones, the mega-cap names that fit all of those criteria. First of all, you've got a chip maker in Broadcom that trades at roughly 17 times earnings and has been positive over the last year, but has fallen on a year-to-day basis. Cisco Systems at 16 times earnings forward is another one, and then Oracle at 16 times as well. Some of the other names that pass that screen from a mega cap standpoint, you can take a look there, are names like IBM, Qualcomm, and Applied Materials. Qualcomm at 14 times forward earnings, Applied Materials at 17 times, and IBM at 13 times forward earnings as well. So there are a slew of stocks, Carl, That could be considered values, but we looked at one scenario. By the way, the rest of those 22 stocks are on my Twitter feed right now at the Domino. If you're curious which other stocks pass that screen, guys, back over to you. 
Dom, I can imagine someone like Kathy Wood looking at this list and kind of shaking her head and saying that you're missing a lot of the future innovation with these names. And it's such a different way of looking at valuation than many investors have over the last two years. The pandemic darlings, they were all based on sort of price to sales because they a lot of them didn't have earnings. So you're not seeing some of those really high growth momentum names um, as they fall out of favor, right? It's sort of this shift at looking at earnings versus the potential sales of these companies, there, of tech companies. There's always a balance, right, between trying to figure out which is more important to you future growth prospects and what you're willing to pay for them or this valuation aspect to them? Are they just trading so cheaply that they have to catch up at some point? Uh, From a valuation side of things, there is more focus on that because of the sell-off. But one of the other things, guys, that's interesting is most of that list of 22 that's up there, they all pay a dividend. And each of these stocks in the top six in terms of market cap all pay a dividend north of 1%. The only one that doesn't is applied materials. It's closer to a three-quarter percent dividend yield, but certainly dividends and price-to-earnings valuations, guys, very much more in focus given the fact that we've seen this downtrend in some of these tech stocks. Yeah, especially an advanced downtrend today, Dom. Dow's down almost 200 here. NASDAQ down uh, 1%. It is expiration day, so we're going to watch that. Along with some remarks from uh, Fed Chief John Williams, let's get to Steve Leisman. Yeah, hey, Carl, uh, we have remarks from two Fed officials, a little more on the dovish side here. We'll go through it. John Williams, New York Fed president, uh, speaking across the river from where we are in Manhattan, says he supports steadily raising rates, reducing balance sheet. We don't know for sure, but that could be a kind of code that's been out there among those officials who have favored 25 basis points. This idea of steady. Now, he does say, I believe for the first time, that it is appropriate to raise rates at the March meeting. His forecast for the U.S. economy, real GDP grows a bit below 3% this year. Unemployment rate uh, to end the year around 35 which is pretty darn low. And the PCE, the inflation index, drops back down to around 3%. Pretty optimistic there on inflation uh, before falling further next year as supply issues continue to recede. Williams uh, goes, oh, now Charlie Evans speaking here at the U.S. Monetary Policy Conference says inflation is largely driven by unusual supply side shocks. He thinks inflation has widened and does require a substantial repositioning of monetary policy. That means rate hikes. But the current monetary policy, he says, is wrong-footed relative to inflation. But he says no extra policy restraint is needed. That may mean that he thinks, you know, steady raising rates, Carl. So we got to watch each one of these and do a little decoding ahead of that debate of 25 or 50 at the March meeting. Carl? Yeah, it's been an active uh, 24 hours, and we still got Brainerd uh, tonight uh, or this afternoon. Steve, we'll watch for that. Uh, it's our Steve Leisman. Let's yes. turn back to what Dom was just talking about. Our next guest says that low P.E. names are not only outperforming, but also undervalued. Credit Suisse's co-head of quantitative research and senior equity strategist Patrick Palfrey uh, joins us this morning to talk more about, I guess, Patrick, uh, in a universe where you do see some opportunities, talk about the basket that we should be uh, eyeing right now. Well, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think the opportunities are in the low value names, given the more favorable valuation. And earlier you cited low P, and I think that's where investors should be placing their focus. I think what has happened over the past 12 to 18 months is investors have really taken a, a, a very close look at the secular growth themes. And as a result, those companies have gotten very expensive. They're primarily in the software sector, um, other portions of the market that are showing very strong innovation. Investors naturally gravitate towards that, and they look quite expensive. And right now, with the Fed raising rates, investors are pacing, playing close attention to how higher interest rates are going to affect the discount rate. And that's causing a lot of those names to significantly underperform. 
So as a result, we're looking for investors to move towards the cheaper names in the benchmark as a way to find opportunities there for, for good companies, but also then to maybe get that valuation support that you're not getting for some of those more expensive names. Right. So does it matter if they're low P.E. growth versus low P.E. value? And also, does it matter if it's low P.E. U.S. or low P.E. X.U.S.? I think the word you use there in every in every example is low P.E. I think that's what's most important. And when you look at this uh, recent sell off, typically quality companies do very well in a market pullback. This time, quality companies are also underperforming in addition to growth. So what investors are doing is they're simply taking a look at their portfolio, really sorting their portfolio high to low on P.E., and they're selling the expensive names and they're buying the cheaper names. And it's as simple as that. It's almost a single criteria which many investors are looking at. It's, it's unusual to see that happening. And we would, we would really encourage investors to, to kind of lean into that approach given the concerns around higher interest rates. Patrick, is that a short-term trade, though? If you're in it for the long run, what do you make of Kathy Wood's argument that she made yesterday, looking for value this way is backward, that you have to look for companies that are innovating, that are sacrificing the E, earnings, for innovation and growth in the future? So I, I, I agree with, with Kathy. I think you want to find innovation. I think the question is, what are you willing to pay for that innovation? Right now, paying for that innovation is extremely expensive. If you take a look out over a five or 10 year time horizon, you can afford to make that investment for innovation because likely that earnings will come through for the winner. I think right now, though, for the next 12 to 18 months, I think valuations are a primary consideration for lots of investors. And given the spread, how expensive those companies are, those, those really expensive companies, that gap has a long way to close. So there's a lot of opportunity in those cheaper names. And frankly, they're, they're good companies. You, you mentioned earlier, a lot of them are paying dividends. There, there's a lot of good opportunities within those names. What do we make of or how do we think about, uh, again, low P.E. names, but names that have had a run in this new environment, like some cyclicals, uh, like some energy, like some banks? So broadly speaking, I think low P.E. is where you want to be all across the market, not even within the technology sector. And really what it comes down to is the fact that, yes, maybe we're seeing a deceleration in the economy from where we were last year, but we're expected to grow two times the average over the past decade. So the economy is still really strong on a real and a nominal basis because companies can recognize inflation. And they can pass it through. So they're benefiting from that. So more cyclically oriented names, oftentimes those are lower P.E. as well are going to do well all across the market, technology included. Interesting environment that we're in, but definitely investors are looking uh, for some value, some bargains at least, uh, across sectors. Patrick, appreciate that very much. Good to see you. Thanks. From outperforming to underperforming, let's turn to Roku, missing the street's expectations in Q4, and shares are plunging this morning. Our next guest is a Roku bear, saying these latest profits were lower than he could have even imagined. And joining us now, Moffat Nathanson, co-founder and senior managing director, Michael Nathanson. Michael, it's great to have you this morning. Uh, you kind of called this last November, so we got to give you kudos for that. Um, worse than you could have even expected, however, we've seen... These shares lose about half of its value just this year alone. Are you, do you think we're seeing the bottom now? How far does this extend? Um, it's funny. There's a quote by a basketball player named Michael Ray Richardson. When the Knicks were losing, someone said, where's, to your question, where is this going? He said the ship would be sinking and the sky is the limit. And we, we think that a lot here. The problem you have is that there's no valuation support at all, right? The company is locked in a battle with three or four major, you know, competitors and they have to spend in order to to try to win so 
I don't see valuation support here. So we try to put a price target of about 100 bucks on it. But the reality is their guide on revenues looks really optimistic. And if they miss again on revenues, given the cost growth, you can keep falling. So the sky's the limit. Or the bottom's the limit. Uh, Michael, (laughs) when you think about a Roku, though, there has been chatter, especially when you see this kind of value wiped out, uh, that it could be an acquisition target. I wonder, you say that it's in such a competitive space. That's very true. What is the technology that Roku has that you think maybe a potential acquirer would want? Well, I think there are two things, right? So their operating system is is good. We we enjoy our Roku TV sets. They actually work really well, almost better than the ones we have from Samsung. Um, so I hate to say that, but it's true um, in terms of Samsung users. And then the second thing is they have the Roku channel. So they have an, an emerging AVOD business that's valuable. The problem you have is that the natural buyers, you know, the Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, they can't buy Roku. There's too much antitrust. Uh, the media companies that we cover have all been slaughtered by their pivot to DTC. Look at Viacom stock price this week. Um, look at where Discovery is. They can't buy them. It has to be either a television manufacturer, maybe like a Samsung. And then Craig and I, Moffat and I were saying, you know, maybe a Comcast, but you know, Comcast would get really hurt as well if they bought this. So the limited, there's a very limited number of places where you can get M&A. Maybe it would be a, a television OEM that wants to accelerate their pivot to connected TVs. That's probably your best shot. Right. And the question is, can they do it themselves? Right. So I guess I made a knocking reference on Samsung's interface. Well, maybe with time and better engineers, they could fix that. So the question is, you know, how much of a moat does Roku have? And is it worth buying them at this level or just waiting it out for the stock to fall further or to hire people from Roku to do the job? Yeah, you, you, you spell this out pretty clearly in your note today. You say, as such, the stock will likely be orphaned uh, until earnings revisions turn positive. And given the outlook here, that feels like a long time from now. What, what could yeah. a long time look like? Well, Carl, you know, that's and that's to the previous your questioning of the previous guest about, like, what do you buy here? Like, our view was in a rising rate environment, the only thing that works is earnings revisions surprising positively. Like you getting, you know, having a company beat in earnings and getting better. I think the question that we raise is, look, they've guided a 35% revenue growth for the year, 25% revenue growth in the first quarter. Everyone's scared about the macro. Everyone's scared about the second quarter compares. I think you know, if they miss on their revenue number and the optimism of 35%, you, you'll have negative revisions for the next two or three quarters, right? So I think, to, to me, it's really about um, getting the revenue number right. Now that they've really killed our profitability, is getting revenues right, and then revenues we will be tracking, advertising growth, SVOD ads. I mean, we have a pretty good way to track this, so give us some time. We'll come back to you. But I think, to me, it's that 35% revenue guide is, you know, I think, fraught with risk, uh, and that's how we see it. Michael, Roku is also trying to move into content, and I just wonder what happens to content spend in the year ahead. Is Roku maybe an indication that it cannot last at these levels? But on the other hand, you also have, you know, the likes of Amazon and Apple, the big tech players who have such deep pockets to continue this sort of arms race. Yeah, and when we've been on the past, you know, we've asked the question, is streaming a good business, right? And that's what you're getting at. Mm-hmm. We don't think streaming is a good business in this current state. There's too many people programming, and the number of hours in the day is obviously fixed. And as hopefully we open up and get outside of our our homes and what? walk around again and play, like you, you have Michael. less hours in the day. Right? <laughs> so okay, but streaming may not be a good business. But then I go back to the likes of an Apple and an Amazon. They don't really need it to be a good business because they've got other very profitable businesses. So it doesn't need to be. Where does it go? 
No, but if you're, I agree with you, and that's the problem with the business model, right? If you're in streaming to sell, you know, groceries or sell new phones, you can lose money, you can overinvest, right? And that's the biggest challenge. Where does it go? At some point, you're going to need consolidation, right? At some point, you need, uh, and we spoke to John Malone about this, it needs to be an oligopoly, meaning less mm. players working in concert. But you're ways away from that, right? And that's, but your point to go in, for the others competing, they don't need to be a good business. And that in itself is the problem, right? Yeah, uh, it's a tricky question. We'll continue uh, talking about it with you, Michael. Thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you. Meantime, Dropbox shares are slipping post results. We're going to talk to Drew Houston in a few moments. Uh, Tech Check is just getting started. get a gut check on DraftKings. As you know, out with results, uh, shares fumbling despite reporting a smaller than expected quarterly loss. A short sports betting company issues a weaker than expected guide for 22 uh, adjusted EBITDA. And Jason Robbins did join us earlier this morning saying that despite the street's skepticism, he does remain optimistic. Take a listen. We have a multi-year plan. That plan goes out five years and, you know, we have certain milestones we need to hit each year to get there. And so far we've hit them all. Remember, we haven't missed a single guide since we went public almost two years ago. Um, now, certainly, I think the you know, consensus for EBITDA, which we did not guide to until now, has been all over the place. But we haven't missed a single number that we put out there. So I think our track record speaks for, ourself, for itself. Uh, meantime, the stock is down more than 30 percent a year to date. D, we've talked from the beginning, really, about how long they could afford the industry, I mean, uh, to pay these customer acquisition costs yeah. and what that would affect, effect that would have on uh, adjusted EBITDA. We're beginning to get a much clearer picture about that. Yeah, we are. It's not that dissimilar to streaming as well, right? The more dollars, more marketing dollars in this sort of nascent industry. Meanwhile, Carl, Dropbox shares, they are lower this morning on the back of a strong Q4, first profitable full year. Revenue grew 12%. Also announced a $1.2 billion buyback, but guidance for the quarter and the full year missing the street's forecast, and that is what is pressuring the stock. Joining us now for an exclusive CEO and co-founder, Drew Houston. Drew, great to have you on the program again this morning. I want to start kind of big picture. It's been nearly four years since your IPO. You are less than a few dollars above your listing price, but the company has expanded. You've made a number of acquisitions. You've gone into the collaboration space. You're capturing more of the enterprise and creator space. Uh, what are investors missing? How are you creating long-term value here? Well, I mean, we're building on a lot of our momentum. And as, as you mentioned, 2021 was a strong year for us. I'm really proud of the progress we made. We ended the year with over $2.2 billion in ARR. Uh, we significantly increased profitability, grew free cash flow by over 40% last year. So we've certainly made a lot of progress since we went public, and, and we have a lot of opportunity in front of us. We launched uh, new products last year, like Dropbox Capture and Shop in beta, and then we've uh, been success successful with our acquisitions. So last year, saw Docsend and Commandee, or added them to the Dropbox family as we expand, continue expanding beyond files. Drew, we talk about this often, but it feels like it comes down to converting free users. You have a ton of those into paid users. Um, the growth there is sort of flat, and 
even though you are adding all of these new features, I wonder, do you need to get more aggressive about making people pay, even if that loses you some of those free users? How are you going to convert them better? Yeah, well, as you pointed out, we have a huge audience of, uh, of free and paid users, and we continue to grow as subscribers for sure. Um, and the, part of the longer-term opportunity and, and, and what we're working on right now is introducing more of our products to our existing customers. So uh, a lot of folks started in just using Dropbox, but as you look at our portfolio now, we got HelloSign and Docsend and a lot more to offer our customers. So we think that's a big lever to continue uh, to better monetize that audience and, and do more for our customers. Hey, Drew, you know, in terms of uh, the nature of uh, post-pandemic work, we talked to Cisco earlier in the week. They're actually changing some of their metrics to better reflect hybrid work products in general because all these IT departments are reinventing themselves. And they will, they'll continue to do so even after people start coming back to the office in bigger numbers. Uh, how are you thinking about that and, and how you're positioned and where, that, where that's going to lead us in terms of, quote, normalization? Sure. Well, I mean, we see a lot of, uh, we've all along, we've seen a lot of opportunities in this transition that we've all lived through in the last couple of years from working almost entirely out of offices to now working almost entirely out of screens. So uh, from a company standpoint, we've changed our operating model. So we have our virtual first model where uh, primary orientation is working from home. But hopefully as there's light at the end of the tunnel with COVID and things are reopening, we're going to be able to reintroduce the in-person experience. I know I'm certainly look, looking forward to that. And then from a product perspective, there's a lot more uh, new pain points that our customers have. So, you, you know, you think about even just the problem we started with, like what used to be 100 files on your desktop is now 100 tabs in your browser. Uh, I think we all struggle to keep track of everything. And so we see a big opportunity for Dropbox to organize all your cloud content in addition to your files and, and things like Command E, the universal search company that we bought last year, uh, are important components of, of uh, solving that problem. Drew, let's talk about the mix of your customers. It felt like on last night's analyst call, uh, you talked and some of the analysts talked quite a bit about the creator category, how you guys are capturing that. Um, it felt like there was a little bit less than usual on the enterprise side. So I wonder, what is the mix right now? And what are the margins like for the creator segment versus the enterprise one? Sure. Well, Dropbox has always been... Uh, or we've always had customers of all shapes and sizes from people using it from a consumer standpoint to people using it in the biggest companies and enterprises. But where we've really seen growth in the last couple of years since the pandemic is with, with, what, with the creator economy and whether that's creative professionals or there's a broader audience of folks who are more casual creators. So you think about, uh, and people you might not even think of as as you might not have historically thought of as creative. So think about the yoga instructor who might have had to move from in-person classes during lockdown to then having video classes and need to be able to monetize that or need ways to uh, distribute that or, or have different kind of interface for their customers. And, and we've seen a lot of demand among these folks to use Dropbox, uh, not just for storing and syncing and sharing, um, but a lot of requests to do other workflows around that content. So to be able to monetize that content directly from Dropbox, we have a new product in beta called Dropbox Shop. Um, a lot of the hybrid work workflows around communicating with video. We have a product called Dropbox mm. Capture that we're really excited about. So these audiences see a lot of differentiation with Dropbox because they live, their workflows revolve around rich media. They use a lot of big files. They need a lot more uh, from Dropbox than what they might have bundled in their suite. So it's an area of strength for us. 
Uh, Drew, last question for you. You're on the Meta board, so I wonder if you can give us any color on Peter Thiel's departure and what the board may be looking for in a replacement. I mean, it's been great to work with Peter. He's had an amazing run. I mean, just think of the whole journey that he's seen. Um, and we, but we've got a strong board in place, and and um, yeah, and we wish Peter the best. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to say more than that, but I had to try, Drew. Uh, thanks, as always. Great to see you. And Carl, awesome. we should exactly. we should mention too, at Dropbox is one of these companies, and that perhaps value tech name with that lower PE ratio. Yeah, and a valiant effort. I think uh, that was more than I expected, Drew, to say. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Drew. <laughs> Meantime, what do DoorDash and Peloton have in common? A lot more than you might think, according to our next guest. You can find out why after the break. Dow has recovered some of that uh, leg lower, now down 93. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla. Markets are all lower this morning after a volatile week of geopolitical concerns. Tech underperforming with the Nasdaq down for its sixth day in seven and on track for its second straight losing week. Plus, are there holes in the arc? On the back of some new comments from Kathy Wood herself, we will discuss. But first, let's get a news update with Frank Holland. Frank. Hey there, Deirdre. Here's what's happening at this hour. Existing home sales shot up 6.7% last month. That growth was over five times more than expected. At the same time, the number of houses for sale fell to record levels with inventories between a third and a quarter of normal levels. The median price of a home is up 15% over the last year to now $350,000. This is sales of homes for more than $1 million surged by 39%. Shares of chicken processor Pilgrim's Pride, they're down 13%. Brazilian meatpacking giant JBS has scrapped a plan to buy the shares of Pilgrim's Pride it does not already own. The deal would have valued the company at just about $7 billion. Deer giving up early gains. Shares are now down just about 3%. Q1 results were strong, and the company raised profit guidance for the year. But on the, co- on the conference call, Deer said field inventory levels are at multi-year lows, and they will not recover until next year. Blumenbrand shares, they're up about 9%. The parent of Outback Steakhouse beating Q4 estimates and giving strong guidance for the year. Blumenbrand's is up 17% this year. That's the very latest. Carl, back over to you. Frank, appreciate that. Our Frank Holland. Pandemic darlings and profitability. What is the outlook for some of these names? Take DoorDash down today after a big pop, as you know, post earnings and strong revenue. But the company did miss big on, on per share, the loss per share. And questions linger over whether so-called growth stocks like Dash will become the next Amazon or perhaps the next Peloton. Here to discuss that thesis is Margins Editor Ranjan Roy. Ranjan, it's great to have you back. You've looked over the quarter and it sounds like you're a little conflicted about how much news was good versus bad. Yeah, DoorDash, it's a tough, it's in a tough place right now because they fit into this larger story about companies that kind of tell these grand visions. Can they actually, uh, you know, realize them? Because for months and years, investors have given so much leeway to companies that make these grand claims. But DoorDash's earnings, they weren't bad. Net revenue was up 34%. They're still growing. And most importantly, and they said this like four times in the earnings call, 14% of monthly active users were participating in uh, adjacent non-food categories like grocery, pet food, and alcohol. So, so it kind of starts telling the story that it's not just about food delivery, which honestly no one has cracked the code how to make money. It's about these higher margin, non-perishable businesses. But as you just said, this is a company that still hasn't shown it can make money. The only quarter of profitability they had was at the height of the pandemic. Their losses increased in 20. 
2021 up to $468 million. Food delivery as a business, no one really knows, will it ever make money? So DoorDash is in this position where they have to show that they can realize this grander vision if they're ever going to become a profitable, sustainable business. And finally, I think investors are starting to pay attention to this kind of thing. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, take Amazon over the years going back uh, to, to, the, to the late 90s or even early 2000s. There were quarters that were great, quarters that missed investment cycles, which they were very clear about, all because they were chasing a very long goal. Could, they, could this be sort of the same dynamic? It's tough because for the last five to 10 years, every single startup, every company says, we're the next Amazon, we're the next Facebook. Remember, Amazon, they were building this, but the expectations weren't baked in. They were allowed to not show profit because they kept investing, but they showed success over and over and over again. And remember, Amazon was making so much money with AWS, they're basically hiding it from investors. All of these companies that were valued Remember, DoorDash was valued at 22x sales about a year ago. That's like a pure software company. Now they're at a more reasonable 6x based on, I think, where the stock is trading right now. It's a reminder that companies like DoorDash, they have to show concrete, tangible results into realizing these visions. They have to show, and investors are no longer going to give a pass into making promises about stories. DoorDash has been consistent forever, the operating system for local commerce. Finally, investors are saying, show us that this is possible. Ranjan, I don't disagree with you. I think that uh, DoorDash has a tough proposition, and it's going into this extremely competitive field of grocery and convenience where it's battling VC dollars at private companies like GoPuff and Fast AF. But why are we talking about DoorDash here? Have you written off Uber? I mean, at least I guess you could say if you like DoorDash, it's making money much better than Uber Eats is. It's captured so much market share versus Uber and some of the other companies in this space as well. So if you were going to bet on one horse, why wouldn't that be Tony Shu and DoorDash that has actually shown much better numbers? No, no, I would say it. DoorDash is the best in a bad category. You know, DoorDash, Uber, and Uber kind of exemplifies this whole telling a grand story. Remember, they weren't just black cars. They were going to re or transform the logistics infrastructure and disrupt FedEx, and they're trading 13% below their IPO from three years ago. I do think DoorDash, in a category that is not necessarily the most attractive, has shown they are better at execution than anyone else. They've started to show that they can make these strides. But again, the, the fundamental question is, can they actually realize that vision? And I honestly, food delivery, we're many years into this experiment and no one has shown that it is a profitable, sustainable category. Right. They need to find that sort of profit engine like Amazon has AWS and now advertising. So some say that it could be advertising. Ranjan, um, I want to get your thoughts when we're looking at the shared economy. What do you think about Airbnb then? They've also sort of had this long path to profitability, but that brand has proved to be so strong. Do you think that makes it unique in this space? Yeah, I think Airbnb has actually shown what a story can become realized. And again, remember at the height of the pandemic and the layoffs, Airbnb, it seemed to be a company in complete chaos. And suddenly they've shown that in this brand new economy, they can execute, they can transform, they can kind of become this infrastructure of people working remotely, of people creating new types of living short-term experiences. So I do think they're actually the perfect example of a company that shows they're much more than just what they originally were 
were promised, which was, a, you know, a more inexpensive way of getting a room for the weekend. I really think they're a perfect example of where the DoorDashes of the world need to show that they can go. We, uh, we mentioned Peloton in the intro, uh, Ron John, and I know your concerns about them are, are pretty acute, uh, given that the losses are growing even in the face of the core business decelerating. Okay, I'm so glad you brought up Peloton because last night they debuted this new video game experience called Lane Break. And as a longtime rider, it's the most fun I've had on the bike in like three years. It's kind of this guitar <laughs> hero meets like you're in the video game Tron. And there's, you know, you go pedal harder and faster depending on what it tells you to do. But honestly, it was exciting because it, you saw innovation happening. It wasn't just trying to sell some dangerous treadmills or sell more of the same bikes. Finally, and, and you can tell it's when the company has the back, it's back against the wall that they can debut these new types of experiences. And from a business standpoint, it's kind of exciting because suddenly, so are you a gaming platform? You're no longer dependent on a small subset of instructors. I, I really think, and again, Peloton, they've had a very rough ride, but at the core, it is a good product. They're finally showing that they can create new experiences and maybe take the company to that next level that they'd promised for the last three years. Hmm. Yeah, well, they're in the middle of a big shift. Uh, we know that, Ron John. A great insight into some names that viewers care a lot about. Always good to see you. Thank you. Meanwhile, guys, Intel investors not very convinced by the company's investor day this morning. Shares are lower despite CEO Pat Gelsinger announcing that the chipmaker is aiming for double-digit annual revenue growth within just three to four years. Shares have fallen over 20% since he took the helm just over a year ago. To be fair, he inherited a bit of a mess. Tech Check is back in just two. Check on the ARK Innovation ETF. Lower this morning on pace for its seventh weekly loss in the past eight. But Kathy Wood remains bullish on ARK Invest's long-term outlook. Joining the Halftime Report exclusively yesterday for more on her strategy. Have a listen. We have a lot of Teslas, Tesla-like stocks in our portfolio. We're really looking for companies that are going to use artificial intelligence and create competitive advantages that no one will be able to uh, will be able to catch. Arc Invest offloading about $56 million worth of Palantir shares after the software company posted an earnings miss that sent shares down 16% yesterday. But Wood still sees opportunity in innovation stocks, saying they're now in, quote, bargain basement territory. Carl, there's a lot of things, you know, to find fascinating and to like about the way that Kathy Wood invests, the transparency, the way that she selects analysts and does research. But, you know, with the interview with Scott yesterday, it was so interesting. He asked her, do you think that all these stocks are going to come back to, pri to prior levels? And she said, absolutely and beyond. I was hoping for a little bit more nuance. Not every stock in a portfolio can be a Tesla, nor does it need to. Look at what she's been able to do with Tesla. Look at what Masayoshi said has been able to do with Alibaba. They don't all have to be winners. And as evidenced by the fact that she sold part of her Palantir stake and Zillow before that, when they start to not living up to those high claims. Yeah, that's what's curious right now, Dee. Uh, that's exactly right. Is How is she now 
making splitting the difference between, as you say, uh, selling Palantir on the print and yet buying Roblox on that print. Uh, that's getting very interesting to see where the, delinea the delineation is for the fund. Meanwhile, this morning, the J.P. Morgan desk note says the decline in ARK resembles the Nasdaq tumbling after the dot-com bubble hit its peak in 01. Uh, the ARK trade has been a beneficial short underperforming SPY by 68 percent over the last year. It's, it's been very tough for yeah. clients. The, the last year has been brutal, but, you know, we do have to look at her performance on, as she would like us to, that five-year basis. And it has been impressive, thanks to some of those big names. Where it goes now, we don't know. But I think the thesis, especially us talking about it on Tech Check, Carl, is a really important one, especially as sort of investors look through some of these sold-off growth names. Uh, where, can, where can they pick up? Where is the innovation still there in the value? Yeah. Meanwhile, e-commerce names uh, have been on sale this week, as you know. Shopify, one of the TMT debacles, worst week and month since 2021, uh, falling more than 20 percent in two days, along with names like Chewy, Overstock, Wayfair, and a lot more following lower. Only name to escape that carnage so far is Amazon. Maybe we'll talk about that in a bit when Tech Check continues. The triple Q's now down almost 5% so far for the month, 13% for the year. The drop is far and wide. Apple down 3.5% in February, 8% off the January high. NVIDIA down 30 from the November high. And Zoom up today but down 7 this week and 70% from the 52-week high. The cloud, uh, cloud guys are faring a bit better today, but the cloud ETF is down 9% in a month and 35% off the 52-week high hit back in November. If that wasn't enough for you, Meta, Salesforce, Intel, and PayPal all D with new 52-week lows today. Carl, one name that is on vacation from the tech tumble, that would be Airbnb. It's on pace for its best week since November. Top performer on the Nasdaq 100 this week and even this year. And one of the top five names since January alongside Booking Holdings and Marriott. Don't go away. We're back in two. Ether, the world's second largest cryptocurrency, has lost almost a third of its value since late November. But despite the drop, traders are finding new ways to hedge and more complicated ways to trade. Kate Rooney joins me here at One Market with more. I guess this was inevitable. Um, but it's interesting what drives Ether versus a Bitcoin. A lot of that is tied to the NFT market. Absolutely. This follows what we've seen with NFTs, a lot of talk about Web3. And we've talked about Bitcoin derivatives and some of the more advanced ways to trade that cryptocurrency. We are now seeing the same trend with Ethereum, sometimes called Ether, there's now more sophisticated trading tools and strong demand for those products. Ether futures volume has been strong throughout the past year or so, even in the face of lower prices. Open interest on the CME still near an all-time high right now. CME also launched something called Micro Futures late last year that lets investors trade in smaller increments. Demand for Ether futures globally across all exchanges hit a high Back in May, but Sean Farrell of Fundstrat tells me there's still been sustained demand in the recent months and overall in the past year. He calls that demand and products like micro futures a strong sign of more sophistication in these markets and more institutional investors likely getting in. The most popular form of these crypto derivatives is something called perpetual futures. There's no expiration date on these contracts and no rollover cost either. 
But with more leverage, of course, it may mean more volatility. Crypto whales are sort of seen as the smart money in crypto, so we tend to watch what they're doing. That really is any person or a wallet holding more than 1,000 Ether. It might look like there are fewer whales right now in the market, but analysts tell me they might not be leaving. They're likely just using those coins in other places. That could be spending on things like NFTs, decentralized finance apps, or other so-called smart contracts. D. Okay, not to get too deep in this, but there's kind of a paradox going on here, right? You're talking about Ether becoming more sophisticated, more institutional investors getting in, but they're not getting in for the reasons that like hardcore ETH fans are getting in for, which is the promise of Web3. Does that even matter? Especially when there's, you've talked about this before, competition in the space different than a Bitcoin. Absolutely. Well, Ethereum is really seen as a pure play and a pure investment on the rise of Web3, whether that's NFTs or any of these decentralized apps. People have looked at this and said, This is the future. This is really the infrastructure behind what people see as the new Internet. So really, the true believers are saying, I'm buying uh, Ethereum and building on Ethereum or one of these other other layer one competitors that we've seen. The markets tend to follow that and see the interest there and say, "Okay, there's interest. There's volume going on. So why don't we launch some other more complicated ways to trade this? They're also launching them in tandem with a lot of Bitcoin products. So you see, you know, Bitcoin futures thing launch on the CME, for example, I was talking to an analyst this morning who said they'll often just pair that with an Ether product. And now more institutional investors are getting in. They now have more optionality and can do both. Well, where there's money to be made, uh, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Kate Rooney, thank you. And if you're hungry for even more of Kate's crypto content, that is a dunk teaser. Check out CNBC's new digital currency show, Crypto World, helping you stay up to date on all things crypto from the latest market trends to the biggest names in the space. Tune in daily at 3 p.m. Eastern at CNBC.com slash Crypto World. We are back in just a moment. One more thing this morning. Chamath Palahapatiya, as you may know, stepping down as Virgin Galactic's chair, effective immediately. Palahapatiya took Sir Richard Branson's space tourism company public via SPAC back in October of 19. Stock has since failed to take off. It hasn't gotten any easier for companies closing a SPAC over the last three months either. Take a look at this chart. The CNBC Post SPAC index down 35 percent since the middle of December. Morgan Brennan covers aerospace and defense for us uh, watching this name closely. It's a name of course, that uh, Chamath basically sold his whole personal stake in about a year ago. He sold the remainder of his personal stake almost a year ago. That was worth about $200 million at the time in March. However, Social Capital is still one of the top three shareholders in Virgin Galactic. What's perhaps so notable about this news today uh, is how quietly it's happening and how abruptly it's happening, given the fact that uh, Pali Hapatia is stepping down effective immediately. Um, and Aaron Lavelle, who is uh, Virgin Group's chief investment officer and a longtime board member, has been with the board since 2017, is basically taking over as an interim chair as the company now searches for a new chairman. Um, it comes in a very busy week for Virgin Galactic as well. After the company opened ticket sales to the general public earlier this week, you actually saw the stock spike more than 30 percent. On that news, it's largely given up those gains. And now, just today, it's down another 7% on this Palihapitiya news. It's down almost 83% over the past year. And it really speaks to more broadly, guys, uh, as you touched on, just how hard hit the broader SPAC sector is. Virgin Galactic is really the name that popularized this type of investment vehicle in 2019. 
Yeah, and Paul Hapatia, sort of the guy who pioneered it, who brought it to us, who wanted us back for every letter of the alphabet, he has made a killing on this investment. In particular, he was able to get out at the right time, sort of after pitching this as an investment for retail investors to get into, to hold for the long term, because it was different than a traditional IPO, Morgan. Yes, uh, that's right. So, I mean, it's not like he sold his stake, uh, which, you know, there were a couple of sales of his personal stake between December and March uh, at the highs, but certainly at a much higher stock price than what we see Virgin Galactic trading at now. Keep in mind, we're going to be getting quarterly earnings uh, report from this company after the bell on Tuesday. It is still a company that is, for the most part, we'll see how this starts to, to take effect now with ticket sales opening back up, but it's still really um, pre-revenue company. The focus here, at least in the near term, is to be able to start launching that commercial space tourism service in the fourth quarter of this year. Um, that is really where the focus is right now for investors and also for the company itself. But Palahabatia also was indicative of the longer term. He was very outspoken about the longer term bull case for this company, which is point to point travel, well, supersonic travel. But that's uh, something we can get into more later at another time, Carl. Yeah, right now, guys, uh, session lows and the president will speak on Ukraine at four o'clock. Enjoy the long weekend. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.